Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Michael, we, um, I say we, but even in museums, we get very hung up on categories. Uh, do, you, do you resent being categorised fundamentally as a musician? I mean, have you always seen yourself as, as an artist more broadly? Resent is the word. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it, it feels limiting. I, I did start um, at, at the age of 14. Photography was my first study in the creative arts, and, and, and then music hit me at 15. Um, and I took pictures the whole time. And I understand... Uh, particularly in America, people are really bad at, uh, once, once you're uh, locked into uh, one category, they don't, they're, they're very resistant to allowing you to do other things. Now, hip-hop changed that a good bit, but I'm still considered, I, and I always will be Michael from R.E.M. I'm totally happy to have those three little letters follow my name through the rest of time, but, um, but I have been doing other things all along. When you went to university, to the University of Georgia in Athens, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do? Or, or by being an art major, was that deferring what your career might actually be? Or did you actually think you would be a visual artist? I went to the, I went to the art school because that's where the cool people were, the punk rockers. And I wanted to get laid, basically. <laughs> I, I, I studied uh, philosophy for, for um, one uh, semester, and I found it really boring and really out of my league. Like, I, I, I don't think like that, and I kind of resent people who do. Um, and then uh, and I moved into English literature, which was fascinating, but I have trouble reading, so that was not easy. And I, I wound up at the art school. Drawing and painting were my majors. Now, what's hysterical about that is that I, I can't stand my line. Uh, as uh, anyone who's ever heard their speaking voice is usually horrified by their speaking voice. I am. I love my singing voice, but I hate my speaking voice. I also, I can't stand my own signature. I can't stand any drawing that I've ever done. I've, I've tried to destroy. Uh, but through cameras and through film and now through digital technology, pixels, um, I found a way to record my life uh, because I don't write a journal. I don't keep um, notes uh, beyond my schedule of what's happened in my life, but I've lived this extraordinary, unbelievable life, and I, I, I want to remember it. So photography was an easy way for me to, to do that. It's interesting about self-consciousness. Cheers. Cheers. We, we chose to have beer. I think we did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry about this. Afterwards, for you all. Mm. Um, this, this self-consciousness, because you say your speaking voice you don't like, or the, the mark you make, yeah. but your singing voice you, you do. Yeah. We've just wondered... Cheekily, I took you around the Lucian Freud show, which is nearly hung, but they're all self-portraits. And I was thinking that as you were photographing other, other bands when you were young and other people, and then there is a lot of self-portraiture, or at least there are images of you in both the books, I wondered how self-conscious you are or how much you cannot afford to be self-conscious about how you look when you're performing or when you're singing. I'm extremely vain uh, and... Uh that's, that's um, guided me towards some very good choices in life. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, early on I had really terrible skin, so I didn't like being photographed. I didn't like photographing myself, but that cleared up. My, the acne went away. I was left with the scars. I realized that um, in certain light uh, uh, I look really good and, and really intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I used that to its advantage. 
I, I like I like how I look. It's good to a man who's comfortable in his, in his own skin. Uh, well, yeah, but I'm also wildly insecure about, you know, uh, as everyone is. I, I have those insecurities that guide us, uh, usually in, in, in good ways. How much did visualizing, not just seeing, but um, photographing? <laughs> well, <laughs> and yeah. there you have it. Look, very good, yeah. Actually, that, it's you and Jeremy, isn't it? Which we could, could, That's true, how, how much did you photographing other musicians performing? It starts to impact subconsciously and consciously on how you were and looked. You must have read that I, I as a, I, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, it's a bit of an arch question. I went but to, I no, 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 but I went, I went to see the band Queen uh, when they performed in St. Louis twice. Uh, I don't know how I managed to do this, but I got front row seats each time. I took my father's Nikon and I photographed the band uh, in two other concerts, 1977, I want to say. And I don't know why they came through twice, but I guess they were doing well. Um, I almost got crushed to death against the barrier. It's before they figured out that people shouldn't push forward. But it was thrilling to be that close to see, you know, Freddie Mercury, of all people, um, perform. And, and I, I'm still looking. My mother and I are still going through all the boxes in the basement. They, my parents had a flood. I don't know if they're still, uh, if those pictures uh, exist. But if, they, if I find them, they'll be in one of the upcoming books, for sure. Worth However a... good or bad they are, I'm going to put them in. So the flood... I photographed the Ramones, I photographed the Runaways. Um, Joan, Joan Jett was on Quaaludes. Um, she jumped, she did a stage dive and landed on me, um, <laughs> which was thrilling, and I told her about it years later. Uh, uh, I, but I, I started with portraits of children, actually, because I was, um, I was in school, I took a class in photography at the age of 14, and I, in another, um, another, uh, another, uh, another hour of my day at, at school was with um, children, and we were learning, I guess, how to be teachers or caretakers. I'm not sure what it was about, but there were a lot of kids, and that, that's, that's how I started. It's interesting about photography and memory, because now, we, with our phones, it's almost instant memory. We see what the image looks like almost as we take it, certainly after we've taken it. And... Um, memory acts in a slightly different way. Mm. But discovering some of the photographs you took back in the day, how different is it to the memory you have of them now? Because memory seems to be one of the things that plays through all your publications, particularly this one, I think. Yeah, memory for me, I, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm really a hippie, and I posed as a punk rocker for a long time, and that, that, that served everyone really well. But I, I feel like memory is what we gather uh, over the course of a lifetime, and that's what remains of us when we, when we leave, when we, uh, when we spin off this, this level, uh, our memory goes off and, and fuels the universe. And so that's, whether it's good or bad memories, and hopefully it's good, hopefully the, the good outweigh the bad, and, and that goes off and, and uh, becomes stardust and, and turns into other things. Uh, memory is really important to me, and, and I, I have a very specific memory. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I, I think this is interesting, but I, I, when I was two years old, I got very, very, very sick. Uh, one thing led to another to another, and I wound up with scarlet fever. And <clears throat> years later, uh, I mentioned it to Patty Smith. Many years later, I mentioned it to Patty Smith, and she said, I had scarlet fever also, as did William Burroughs. And she and William had what they called the scarlet fever club, because William had this um, uh, idea that um, uh, scarlet fever boiled your brain and altered the synapses, the way that you, the way that you put things together. 
Um, my memory is really spotty, and I have friends who have perfect memory. I have friends who have photographic memory. Kanye West, of all people, has a photograph memory. I don't know if people know that. And he has many other things that I don't want to talk about, but he's, there, are, there are odd people in, in, in our lives like this particular public figure who, who possess this ability. I don't have that. Did you always have a spotty memory? I mean, it's not just age that happens to all of us. It was, it was always, if not selective. When I, um, when I go to uh, funerals and uh, weddings, uh, I try to look back on them, and I, I black out. When I, when I get overly um, stimulated, I go into a blackout. So I, I have no m real memory of, of these events where it's really, I think, um, because I'm picking up the energy from everyone around me, um, I'm very sponge-like in that regard, and I pick up the energy, and then it just it overwhelms me, and I, and I go into blackout. So I do have a very spotty memory. Sorry to be literal about it. When you say, I mean, I know what a blackout is in memory, but mm. does the image literally blur, or you can't have it, or does it, is it just blank? Because I'm just thinking about the way you use pixelation and half-tone and obliteration of images and revelation of images in the books, and I wonder how much it plays to your experience within your, your mind rather than just the physical process of image making. When it happens, you don't know, I don't know that it's happening. It's only later when I try to recall um, uh, the moment that I... That I and it, 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 it happens, it did happen when I was as a performer, but I would be reminded of something and I could recall exactly. I had, I had instant recall. So that was, that was a different uh, situation. But so, yeah, the pixels. Um, I, I, you, the, the whole book is really about this, this weird uh, place that we find ourselves in between analog and digital and, and trying to address how that's changing the way we look at things, the way we look at ourselves uh, through social media. That's, um, Instagram would be the most obvious example. How we look at others, how we converse, uh, how the way things look to us is altering the landscape that we move through, be it um, social, uh, uh, cultural, political, or otherwise. And, and I think that we're in this very, um, um, uh, uh, well, we're, we're definitely in a transitional phase between what was and what will be in more ways than one. But the way that, the way that we see things um, is changing, fundamentally changing who we are, I think. And, and this is something that started maybe with the advent of computers and digital technology and, 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 and is generational and something that needs to be addressed in order for that to not to become a bigger problem as we advance uh, in the next 10 years or so. Okay, so that's one of the overarching themes about yeah. codes of representation and the, the, the tug between different forms of represent, representation, digital and analog. But there's a kind of, well, I say non-narrative narrative or narrative non-narrative in this book, 191 images. You and Douglas Copeland, I don't know how it was done, but it must be the two of you selecting. And there is a kind of personal journey clearly evident there. Yeah. And it does start with early images of you. And it is punctuated with all sorts of themes, I mean, vulnerability, fragility, you've talked about uh, queerness, gay identity and so on. So what is the narrative or non-narrative and how did the book come together? I started with um, the first 10 pages are, are uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, self-portrait. And I, I just always want to... It's, um, I feel kind of silly saying this out loud, but I always want to make it easy for people who do think of me as a certain thing. I want to make it easy for, for people to, to acknowledge or recognize something else. And so this is not a hobby. Like that, I guess that's kind of what I'm saying. But um, 
I open it with this, uh, the self-portrait that ends with a picture of a light bulb, uh, the, in the inside of a light bulb. And that, when I was th three years old, I think, or four years old, I wanted to become the filament in the light bulb, so I bit into it to, to get inside. And my father and my uncle found me, and they pieced together the light bulb to, to, uh, to make sure that I hadn't swallowed any of it. But I look back on that, and that's a memory that I have. I look back on wanting, like really keening, really desiring to be the filament, and I think, how, what, what kind of, what kind of uh, open brain would allow that? It's so beautiful, really, in a way. It's so poetic and stunning. Which, so now it's become a part of my story. <laughs> I, like, I like that I was that little kid wanting to be the filament, you know. To get inside something. No, not, but the light, I wanted to be the filament. I wanted to be the thing that, 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 that glowed. The light, yeah. yeah, and my, I mean, it was uh, a few years later when we lived in Germany that I got the nickname Mike Stipe, the Shining Light, which had nothing to do with uh, the People's Republic of China, but... but um, <laughs> So, and so in those early, in the self-portrait section, there are, um, it said there are pages retrieved from a flood in Athens. And I didn't know whether they were you or not, and presumed they were you, but you just told me that the, your parents' basement was flooded. So early drawings those by drawings, you of a tree, I which kept, is... Yeah, I kept yeah. those. I kept those because the one reminds me of um, a drawing by Duchamp, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very odd piece of his, but he's a hero of mine. And I think it's a self-portrait, I'm not really sure. The, my, my, my little drawing. Um, and the other one is, I think I was a Cub Scout and I was learning how to be a good um, forester. So it's called Forester. <laughs> but I, it's a drawing that I actually like. And actually social sciences, geology, was something you studied. I mean, you, you, I did. you, didn't you toy with being a geology major before an art major? Oh, I decided I wanted to be an archeologist when I was a, a, a preteen because okay. I, I, I thought it was really cool to um, wear shorts and a bandana and hang out in the sun with a bunch of half-naked people. And I, and I liked dinosaurs and I liked rocks, so that seemed like a perfect uh, job for me. <laughs> Career but, choice, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so then, evolving, I mean, I, I'm, it's good, I've managed to funnel you, funnel you into a complete narrative at the moment, but so it, it, it is a life journey of sorts then. I mean, specifically, there are punctuation points that you acknowledge, and how do you and Douglas work on the image selection? How does that play out? Um, so Doug, my, my boyfriend, Tama, is also a visual artist, and uh, he uses photography a lot. We, um, we, what's, what's it called, the, uh, when two circles come together and it's a part Moray of the pattern. Is no, it no, no, no. It, yes, what is the it? The Van diagram, sorry, yeah. Yeah. the overlapping. Yeah, so Tama knows me very well, and he says that I have no hierarchy of image, which, which was news to me. <laughs> I'd never thought about it that way before. Um, but Doug... Uh, to counter that, and, and I, I think it's actually true. I look at things, um, and there are images in this book that are embarrassingly badly taken, but there's something there. There's something beautiful. There's something um, arresting about them, and, I, I, and that's part of the journey, part of what I'm trying to uh, embody here with this book and with this idea. Um, Doug, on the other hand, uh, categorizes everything, and he knows my work really well, and so he came in and I had about uh, almost 3,000 images, I think, and we brought it down to the uh, 200 um, or so images in the book. But he did so by categorizing things as he saw them, which is fascinating because he's, we're both Capricorns, um, and, uh, but he, he's a very, very different, uh, a very different eye than, 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 than I am. I had to give a talk recently and I realized the only way I could plan it in the end, I just got so 
tired of trying to bring all these things together that I wanted to bring together, that I, I printed out everything and just literally one after the other on the floor. And I realised I used to make lectures by using slides in that, that very way. And now, of course, digitally on, on computer, it's difficult. You don't get the linear narrative. I don't know why, but as I looked at this, I thought, I wonder if they did actually just put things on the floor. We did. Play. Yeah, actually, that's how we laid out the book. And um, I wanted to take the, the, I wanted to take you, you or one on a journey through the way I see things. And I could not have done it without Doug. He really helped immensely and helped me see my own work uh, in these ways. Uh, this picture, for instance, uh, the way that, this is um, Paul Clay's uh, step in, uh, uh, in, in the Bauhaus when he was teaching at Bauhaus. And, uh, and it's deliberate on its side, we should say. This and it's, it's been flipped. Yeah. So the idea, the, the book opens with um, an, a black and white image of a, of a window, which kind of represents um, the looking glass. And, and, um, and then the first image is a black and white image that's really hard to decipher, intentionally kind of topsy-turvy. And then the next image and every image after is col a color image. So it opens with black and white. And then, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, it goes into a color world. So... I was trying to, I was trying to um, introduce people to the way that I see things in order for it to make more sense. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, I was going to say Eisenstein, but Dorothy is much more appropriate. Um, you know, the painting of the red flag, it was, shows my pretentious cultural roots, really, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but, but you don't number the pages. I do. In the first book, 32 images, each page numbered, index at the back, great. I can see this, and that's all black and white. I understand why not, because it, then it becomes a literal diary, if you're constantly... But it, it, nonetheless, it makes the viewer work hard, because I have to kind of count sorry, 15 sorry, pages and then go through I'm, and then go back, because I have that mind that wants to know what the image is. I might loan you my readers, but, but um, every fifth page is numbered. OK. okay. Did this, no, no, well, then... Because you do, I, you do I mean, need to lend me your glasses. Because I was counting the pages dutifully from images that I could recognise, and then working. There's nothing more frustrating than looking at a photo book and, and then finding the index at the back and, and having to like, okay, Yul Brenner, I know with who he looks like, and then you have to go find Yul Brenner, and then you go back four images to figure out. That's. Um, but I presumed you didn't want people to do that in that way. I mean, the obvious way is to photocopy the back pages, and then you've got them as an index when you need them. I wanted. I wanted to make it easy. Uh, uh, well, you didn't, but well, that's no, not No, I did, I did, I did. They're there. They're there. Every fifth page. Um, why the book format rather than the wall? I mean, I know you have done... I mean, you did an exhibition around in Williamsburg around the first uh, volume one, that, which is called volume one, with, with Jonathan Berger, where there were objects and images. But, but what is it about the book format that, that interests you most? Books are a way to move into... Uh, to, it's a way to... Um, uh, distribute into the world in a very, very different way, and and uh, and a way that ten years ago it was 2009. Um, we all thought that books were going away, and and that everything was going to be backlit and and on um, Kindles. Um, and now there's a return to the people desire. We like having things, whether or not we. I might read the news online, but I do like getting the paper on a Sunday morning. Um, we like we like having things, and a book is just a it's a way to, um, yeah, it's just a way to move into people's world, worlds and lives in a, in a, in a way that they, they can, they can uh, 
they can have it there to look at it whenever they want. But, you, don't, you don't have to go online for it. But they're beautiful things as well, aren't they? When I, I love mean, books. I love objects. I'm very object-oriented. These are great tables, by the way. <laughs> I, I like these tables. This is also a stair from the Bell House. Um, and it, it just re it, it references uh, a fascination with corners, which I have. There are a few pictures of corners in there. Um, and that's a hole. <laughs> this... There's some moments in the book that, that raise really interesting questions. When I mean, you mentioned Duchamp, and the idea clearly of the found object or the found image has underpinned so much of, of, of you know, cultural outpour exploration for the last 80, 90 years, but it's still a very fertile territory, and it's, you can see how he, he's been a hero of yours. There's, there's an image I love, though, where there's a Duchamp books, and then there's a photograph, which when I did make it to the index, it's a photograph of your father yeah. in the first grade. <laughs> so then I looked at this and thought, is this something that Michael has composed? Is this a found composition that makes a found a, a homage to the, you know, the, the pioneer of fat, found imagery? Or is it something that you've utterly constructed? It was a found composition. I, I didn't do it intentionally. Uh, I put the books there to keep the photograph from falling off the ledge. And then I saw it one morning. Uh, that's in my house in Athens, Georgia, uh, which I bought as a young man and I kept because my family lived there. Um, uh, Duchamp, it's, the book is called Duchamp at 85. Yeah. He lived to 83. He never made it to 85. So, um, and my father also lived to 83. He never made it to 85. So there's this interesting, like my, my real father, who I loved very, very much, uh, as I never actually knew him. He's, got his, he's, it, it, he's wearing this outrageous outfit uh, with these giant pants, and um, he's got his arm. There, this that's is, him, this that's is him. It. So he's got his arm jacked out to the side, there and he's holding his books and that that look on his face uh, and he had those legs his whole life, but um, uh, I love my father very much and um, he that's when he was um, he played violin he was a he was a, a, a he loved music and but he had a, an, an early teacher of his uh, the story goes um, uh, was very critical of his violin playing and hurt his feelings and he put the violin down and he never picked up a musical instrument again. And I, so I feel like in a way, my father's pride in, in my, my journey, which was unexpected and unexpectedly successful, uh, uh, was, was deeply profound for him, uh, not just out of pride for his son, but also uh, I think it was a very personal thing. So you became the musician he never quite could be. I mean, I'm romanticizing my own past, but we all do that, don't we? We do. Yeah. And what about, in inverted commas, father figures or influences in the visual arts? I mean, I, I was looking at who taught you at University of Georgia, Jim Herbert being yeah. one, and thinking, crack, you know, I knew he'd worked with Stan Brackish. I didn't know he'd been taught by Clifford Still, the great West Coast abstract expressionist, a room of which we had here two years ago, and I'm still reading from it. Yeah. I haven't seen much of still over here. Um, how, was he a major figure for you? Jim was very, very important. Jim, uh, uh, there were a, a few people who really defined um, what Athens, Georgia was for the, the burgeoning music scene and uh, art, art scene that was happening there in the late 70s and the early 80s, and that's what, that's, that's what uh, R.E.M., my former band, came out of. And um, he was an he's, he's still an astonishing teacher, he can't help himself, like he, he, he's very vocal uh, and very opinionated. He now lives in New York, so I get to see him pretty often, but uh, he, you know, he had made, um, I, you probably know Lawrence Kardish, 
was the head of film at MoMA for a long time, and uh, Larry was a big fan of Jim's and bought every film that he put out. He would make a movie a year starting in the early 1970s, a feature film with only nude people. And he would re-photograph, uh, uh, he would shoot uh, these images and then he would freeze frame and, and zoom in on. Uh, so in a way, actually I'm realizing, my God, what I'm doing in this book is exactly, directly from Jim Herbert. I only just made that yeah. profound revelation. Wow. But, but he was your contact. Were you aware of that pictures generation that was going on in New York through the 70s and 80s? Not at the time, no. But later, it, it resonated yeah, with what yeah, you were interested yeah. in, but they weren't direct influences. It came yeah. through him. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, um, and Howard Finster, was that a bit later? Because, he, again, he's a, he's a curious figure <laughs> in that Athens scene. Uh, categorised as a kind of naive or visionary artist, a folk artist. Once again, the tyranny of categorization. But this amazing collector and installer or assembler. He was visionary uh, and by, his own, uh, uh, by his own definition, and, but that's because he was a man of God and... He got a spot of paint on his finger once, and it, it told him, uh, I am God, and I'm telling you, you must paint. And so he painted for the rest of his life to try to spread the word of God. He also was a, you know, he, like, a, like any, he was a preacher, but like any good preacher, and particularly from the South, you know, he was a snake oil salesman. And, 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 and he, was, he was kind of a, you know, he was a repscallion, like he, he, was a, he was a trickster, you know. He had he had all these elements that um, that turned him into a really fun person to be around, and I, I loved Howard very much. You collaborated with him, and as well as the worst, the worst. I, I, the, my my greatest regret as a graphic artist, which is really what I should have done. Uh, I, I I never knew that I had the voice that I have, and I'm glad that I do, and I'm glad that it's still with me. But uh, I really I think I really wanted to be a graphic artist. Uh, the cover of Reckoning, the, my former band's second album was me going to Howard with a drawing of a two-headed snake and presenting it to him and saying, it's like the game Candyland, and I want you to paint in uh, all the different parts. And he did, you know, but it was, my contribution is just hideous, and I'm still horrified by it. But anyway, we don't have to talk about that anymore. No, but but it is talking. interesting that you, that was a collaboration. Um, the books are collaborations. Uh, you are the front man, but music is a collaboration. Yeah. Uh, I wondered how much now, you, you, it's a solo uh, yeah. release you've just made, how easy are you being solo and how much is collaboration really at the heart of what you do? I don't work well in a vacuum at all. I, I really need people to bounce uh, ideas off of and I need people to offer opinions that I may disagree with, but um, I, I'm, not, I'm not great on my own. I don't think I'm much better with, um, with a team. And so even with the solo career, which I just launched two weeks ago, and you mentioned the, the single, thank you for that. Uh, uh, I, I wrote the songs. Uh, it, it's my first compositions, my first working with music. And I worked with a, a, a songwriter, a great friend of mine, Andy Lamaster, who is an um, engineer and producer and singer-songwriter in his own right. And um, so we, we, we co-wrote uh, uh, most of the music that you will be hearing that's going to come from me as a solo artist. And the video, Sam Taylor Sam Johnson. Sam Taylor Johnson, yeah. Who, it's great to see, I mean, uh, I haven't seen her for a few years, but I think she's a really good artist, but the, you know, the rumour in the categorised world of the British art world is, oh, she went to Hollywood, she makes films, but she's still doing all sorts of other things too. She had done a video for, um, the la I think, the last album for R.E.M., uh, a song called Uberlin, 
and it's her husband, Aaron, who's an actor, a very good actor, uh, dancing through the streets of London. And it's one of the best things we ever did. And I, I was really stuck with this idea. I knew what I wanted to represent uh, the first solo single. It was important to me. And the fact that I'm aligning it forever, I guess, with Extinction Rebellion and the first year of all my profits go to that organization. Uh, as a member, I'm very proud to be able to offer that. Um, but um, I knew that I, the, the video needed to be a certain, uh, the, the, the visual presentation uh, for the song needed to have a certain um, nuance that I didn't know how I was going to find it. And it dawned on me one night, fuck, Sam, I have to go to Sam. She's, of all people, she's the person who's going to be able to figure this out. And she said yes instantly, and within a week she presented me with the first, um, the first cut of, which is, it's actually uncut, it's, a, it's one single shot. Uh, and it, it references beautifully the last video, I'm going I'm to say this out without bursting into tears, but the last video that I made with R.E.M. was, um, came from a dream where um, I imagined, I know the song is called We All Go Back to Where We Belong, and in my dream, uh, I had approached John Giorno and Kirsten Dunst, who at the time was my next door neighbor, um, and asked them each to represent the band in our final, uh, our final visual piece. And they both said yes. And so I woke up and was like, well, that, that was a weird dream. But I then uh, reached out to each of them and said, would you represent the band in, in, for this beautiful song? I didn't tell them it was the last thing ever. But you knew and that was the last thing ever. Never, never say never, but you, you keep I, saying you're I, not going to reform. That's, that's done. That won't happen, no. Do you, when, when you finish this, does it suggest what you might do next with the books? Or are they, are they, are they closed entities? You know, they, they, you put them away and then think what you'll do next later. Does, what do they call it, an acorn? What do they call uh, when you put a little clue? Seed or an acorn or a, I, a clue, yeah. There's a, Is there? What's the, what's the contemporary term for that? An Easter egg. I hate that term. Let's, <laughs> let's swipe that. An Easter egg. I put an acorn in there for what I, for well, what I, what I well, anticipate will come next. Well, given I missed the page numbers, I wouldn't have seen that, would I? But I okay, so there, so there's, okay, so we can decode that. It's near the back. Yeah, it's good, near, good, it's near the back. Good the sales book. pitch too that we can. Um, everyone needs to get the book and yeah. can decode it. And volume um, one has a has a very big Easter egg. Sorry, uh, yeah. the, the the back page of volume one indicates this. Yeah. yeah. So so you know exactly where you're going with this, and this is a series we've had two so far. You've put the acorn down for three. Do you have a sense of when it might finish, or will it finish when it finishes? Um, I've spoken with the publisher about doing five books uh, in the same size format. Uh, we just love the idea of, of having these books on a shelf together. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to buy every book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Do what you want. But, uh, the, you said some time ago that when you, both when you wrote music and when you sang in the studio... Yeah maybe on stage two, yeah. you wanted to visualise your vocals, you wanted to imagine what they look like. The penultimate image here actually has a quantized image of vocals, so of you, you've realised that, it's interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. your voice. Um, but I, I, I wondered how much that kind of synesthetic idea of, of, of visualising sound in, played out when you wrote songs. Yeah, so it, it always has, and, and uh, it's only good music. Bad music is just, just annoying, uh, and that happens a lot in public places and restaurants. Uh, and it's always irritating, but um, uh, really good music or a good soundtrack, uh, uh, I, I see more than here. And with the band, or, or now with my own work, uh, my job is to then... Well, what's funny about the work that I'm doing now, and I know we're not supposed to be talking about photography and that music, but uh, is that um, I forget that I composed it, so I have to go back to Andy 
and say who wrote this. Um, there are a few people outside of the two of us that are that we're that I'm collaborating with, um, but I can, I never remember uh, the ones that I wrote. So that's really actually good because I can compose I can write lyrics and melodies to that work as if it was written by someone else. It's almost like the surrealist idea of automatism, you know, of automatic writing or losing control in order to create and then somehow understanding later what it is you've produced or a manifestation of the subconscious. But obviously well, theirs was a more conscious subconscious act. I took a lot from Brian Geisen, if I'm saying his name correctly, and, and William Burroughs and the, the whole idea of cut up. And um, I actually just finished John Giorno's uh, memoir, which is coming out, I think, very soon. And he, he talks about that a lot in, in his memoir. Um, yeah, the... Um, uh, I lost my train of thought. We're, um, you, you mentioned synesthesia, and it's, I, I think it's important to note that I'm not synesthetic, um, nor am I on the spectrum of, of, uh, uh, of Asperger's, but, but I am somewhere in, that, somewhere in there. I'm not, uh, and I, I say that with, uh, with great pride, that um, I do have friends who are synesthetic. I have, uh, I have acquaintances, uh, and at least one friend who's, uh, who's on the spectrum. Uh, two friends who are on the spectrum, and I know that I'm not that. But but the way that I interpret stuff is really quite um, unhierarchical, if that's a word. It it, it it does come to me in these in these uh, peculiar ways. It's poetic too, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, Baudelaire, the obsession of sound, sense, cries. And I was thinking too of Lautrimont, you know, much beloved by the Surrealists, where. You know that classic dictum of the chance encounter of the of the umbrella and the dissect uh, and the and the sewing machine on a dissecting table. Two realities and a third reality changes the meaning. And as I was looking through the book, I thought, ah, there's definitely that kind of game going on. But actually, it's it's more structured than that. There is a, a, a more narrative choice. But putting something next to something else fundamentally changes the meaning, and you explore that a lot. I tried to yeah, I tried to make it um, super obvious the way I match the, the pages one 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 to the other, and then excuse me from excuse me, um, from, from one page you would flip and you might get a, another image that looks very much like that image and then it moves on. There are a few chapters uh, in the book, the, the, the self-portrait that I mentioned at the beginning that then hopefully provides um, an entrance into, um, uh, into the rest of the book for people that, um, well, for, I just wanted to do it, so that's how, I, that's how I did it. But then near the end is uh, really what I think is maybe the most important part of the book is... Um, uh, a, a painting by the British uh, artist Paul Nash uh, of, of the sea that he painted in the 1920s uh, when he returned from World War I. And he had what we would now call post-traumatic stress. Uh, and his way of moving through that wa was to paint. The, the image to me is easily 80 years ahead of its time. It's so beautiful. And it, it's um, uh, referencing Cubism, but it's, it's so far advanced from where I think uh, Picasso and Brock were at that point, or, or their, their immediate followers. Um, and then that opens onto an image from a TV uh, screen uh, from a hotel advertisement, uh, which looks like um, Tron, kind of, like a fucked up Tron. And then it goes into these six, five or six images that are, um, that are hard to decipher. They're, they're turned on their side for one thing, but once you begin to realize, or if you look in the index, that they're whales, they're these incredible, these beautiful creatures. And it was as close as I've ever been to a whale. Um, I'm really afraid of the water. And so I don't surf or, um, or uh, 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 kayak into the, into the ocean. Uh, but um, uh, in, uh, at, uh, it, uh, around the corner from the Sea of Cortez, 
at the bottom of Baja California, which is Mexico. Uh, the whales um, come so close to the shore that you can hear them blowing. Uh, and the, it's because the, the, the sea drops off 200 feet at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the beach. If you step into it, you're dead. You, you, you will not survive. You'll get pulled out and that's it. But you get to stand on the, on the beach and there's two different types of whales. There's one that's bigger, that's a little further out, maybe three or 400 feet out. And then there's one that's like, I'm not kidding, like 200 feet from shore. And there are these images, one after the other, of these whales blowing or cresting, or the, the final image is uh, uh, the, the tail fin. And I just love, I love it because I shot it with my digital camera. I then went back to my room in, in, in my hotel in Mexico, and I blew up the image on my computer, and I was so excited. I re-photographed it with my iPhone, and they're the shittiest pictures. <laughs> they're so bad. But the, the majesty of, of that creature and and then our connection to that creature and everything that we, you know, living in 2019 and knowing what we know about, about um, how, how much we're impacting uh, not only our own species but other species, those pictures are so fucking beautiful. And, and it kind of, for me, exactly describes what the book is about. And so I, I made that into the, uh, the chapter that, that introduces the very end of the book. There's almost a kind of cosmological dimension to how whales communicate across vast swathes of the ocean. And... I was struck by the fact that, not quite peripatetic, but you, your family moved around quite a lot when you were a child. Yeah. I think almost every REM album was produced in a different city. Uh, even now, you're off tomorrow. You were somewhere yesterday. The book ends with an image from an airplane. Um, it, travel and the idea of the road doc, a diary, or in this case, the kind of air journey, must underpin, and it must have been the life of you as a musician on, on tour all the time. Was photography and the visualisation or the capturing of those uh, moments important to you, or is it a reflection of the experience that you had that you put the book together in that way? It was more than important. It was crucial for me to be able to go back and remember these moments because, um, because I do have this extraordinary life filled with extraordinary events and people, and, and I, I've always lived a nomadic life thanks to my father and his job. Uh, as an army pilot, um, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, and and then uh, I had one year where we I didn't move at all. I stayed in Athens, Georgia, and then I started uh, the band at, at 19, and then I really took off. And um, the past week was uh, four cities in four days, four countries in four days, actually, um, doing some other promotion and doing some book things. But uh, it was, you know, it's always been kind of that intense. So I want to be able to go back and look. Um, to remember, oh, I was with that person then, and then I'll send him a text and say, I, I thought of you today, and, and I miss you, and I love you, or something. That's my way of staying connected to this, the pace of my life and uh, um, um, not having the kind of memory that I was talking about earlier, where I, can, I have recall that's either dependable or um, sequential. How much is the idea of stopping horrifying to you. I mean, you have occasionally crashed and burned and had to have time out, but uh, you get the feeling with you if, you, if you stand still too long, you'll get too restless. But then you, there is a sense of wanting to immerse yourself in a place, which you did with various albums. How does that play out? Um, I typically pick up every three weeks and go somewhere new. And I, I, there, I've always been that way. I have, I, I've never been big on therapy. I always felt like my work was my therapy. Um, my boyfriend... Uh, has a different opinion about that, but... <laughs> uh, 
So do you feel the, rooted anywhere? I'm trying, no, I don't. And, and that, that's a little bit sad to say publicly, but um, I never felt, I, you know, the, the Gang of Four, a band that I love very much, had a song at home, he's a tourist. And I've always felt um, like a tourist in my own life. Like I, I, I've always, that sounds so pathetic and sad, but it's okay, it's a, it's a great life and I'm very happy with it. But um, neither Athens, Georgia, nor New York City, I would call my, my two, the two places where I've spent most of my time as a base are really home. I don't really feel at home in either of them, nor Berlin, um, nor LA. I lived in LA for a short period. I would never do that again. At the risk of being an amateur shrink, I don't get a sense of yearning for the place you've not found yet, but, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I don't think I'm looking for a place. I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm intended to, to move. And um, that's, that's fed me well as a person. It's treated me well as, a, as, a, as, a orga, as an organism. I've done pretty good for, I'm almost 60 now. Um, and I, I feel like I've I, I managed myself pretty well with, with that kind of a schedule. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, it, it always felt, um, when there are people that stay put, um, it always felt like the saddest thing ever to me. And I, I can't imagine it actually what that would be to, to be born and live an entire life and, and die in the same place. I can't fathom what that feels like. But I love to travel and I love seeing the world and I love experiencing it and I, I experience it mostly through my eyes and, and I take pictures the whole time. So, Do you know Cornell's work well? Or do you know Joseph Cornell's work? I know Joseph Cornell's work, yeah. I, I thought I knew, knew it reasonably well and a, a brilliant young curator, Sarah Lee, did a show here four or five years ago. And the thing I didn't know about Cornell, those amazing constructions of different cities mapped and alluded to and uh, around the world, he never left New York. Wow. And, I um, didn't know that. And I, I was thinking, actually, this could be surrogate travel for you, but of course it isn't, is it? It's just an ongoing reflection and um, emerges from your obsessive journeying, restlessness, yeah. travel. It's restlessness, I think, yeah. So, so let's, before I throw you to the floor, just one more, it's not a go at trying to root you. I, I, I don't dispute, you, you do feel a kind of lack of roots. But of course, we're rooted through our friends, those we love, our families. And I was struck recently by an artist who was sitting in this room who said, um, I was taught by someone who was taught by Bomberg, who was taught by Sickert, who was taught by, in Paris by X. So, and he got back to Angre, one of his heroes. And he said, and I feel rooted through that. I, I, it may just be that I'm yearning to see that lineage. And I was thinking that you know, Jeremy Ayer, who was a, a very important figure for you, I know, and who you pay homage to in different ways uh, and reflect on in both books, he, he was a, a, a Warhol superstar for a time, wasn't he? he was, yeah. a, uh, does that, do you feel connected? I mean, you're photographed with Warhol as well in one of the books. Yeah. Do you feel connected to that tradition in American visual arts directly? Very much, and Jeremy was, an, was a profoundly important part of my development as, a, uh, as an adult and as a, um, as a I don't know, I, I was kind of a, I, I was so uh, intractably shy and, and um, insecure uh, as a teenager. Uh, he provided me with a, a way to, to, to be, uh, to take a step back and to look at myself and be able to laugh at myself. To, he taught me so many things and, and um, he was a profoundly important person for me. Uh, as important as Patti Smith, really. I mean, that, to that level of, of like, this, I'm going to carry this through the rest of my life. And I, 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 I owe him a great deal for that. There's, a, there's an amazing image in the book. There are many, but the one I'm thinking of is, um, it, it's of 
it's the, the, in, in the index, it's, it's Jeremy's drive after his death. Yeah. When I looked at it, just looking through the book, I thought it was pixelated, and of course it isn't. It's, it's shot through <laughs> a perforated, slightly rusted um, sheet of metal. That's leaning against the side of his house. Um, I couldn't contextualise that. I could just see foliage just about. It's when I went to his house right after he passed away, right after he died. And he died very unexpectedly. And I flew back from Paris uh, to help him die. And it was a horrible time. But I went to his house, and the sun was shining in a particular way. And here was this thing that, before he passed, he and I had been talking about the subject for this book. And I'd been gathering these images and, and trying to do a comparison-contrast and the way the sun hit this piece of metal and the perforation and the siding of this wooden house that he refused to paint his whole life, he would not paint that house. So it wound up looking like, um, like a computer chip. Huh? And there was the sun hitting it in the, this exact way that made it look like a pixelation and a moray pattern. And I took the picture, uh, deeply grieving, but I took the picture and thought, thank you for this final gift. And um, the picture turned out. And so it had to go in the book. Absolutely. I said this is a final question, but it's, talking to you, I've started doing it now. You use your hands beautifully, and, but very, very notably. And I was thinking about hands in the first book oh, yeah. and Kurt Cobain's hands, that, again, the photograph you took of them, and then this was published subsequently and became a, a, a sort of, I seem to be part of a grieving process, but also a homage to someone. Yeah, Kurt, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the images of the portraits of people who are well-known, uh, who I'm hanging out with, I, I, I often would not want to take a picture of their face because I'm in the moment, uh, and the, that moment was beautiful and, and, and you know, real and not about fame and not about being a public figure or being known outside of this moment. And so my way around that would be to photograph his or William Burroughs' hands rather than... I took a picture of William's back. You know, he was so stooped and so old and, I, and, and to me, though, he was this god, you know, he was this incredible um, beacon of, of queerness and, and, and exploration of, 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 of different ways of thinking and different ways of seeing. And, and here I was with him uh, for the first time. That was the first day I met him. In fact, I, we, we then went on to have a longer relationship. But the pictures that, that were, these are the, that's the whale. So that's yeah. a whale cresting. And it's a terrible image. And you see here the, the, the yellow is a reflection from the screen of my computer. Um, that indicates that uh, I, um, there was a light behind me. And here's a whale blowing. And you see here in the bottom right corner, that's the beach. So we, I, 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 I framed that in the book so that you could see how close I was. And you could hear them. And they're so magnificent and we're fucking up the whole world. Yeah, you weren't being falsely modest. They're not great images. Uh, they're, they're, they're not, not great pictures, no. but, they, they, they're, <laughs> but, but, but they're... But they're... they're Fantastic in the context of the book, and also the way that one is pixelated, one is blurred, one is clear. That it, it, it's a kind of manifesto in a way, or at least it, it shines a light on, on what you're looking at. The vagaries of representation. I as well threw as down the glove. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. At the end, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end with the final image, which is perfect choreography. Or in a minute now. No. But um, thank you so much, Mike. Thank it's you, a so pleasure. Much. Really yeah. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.